the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And I'm Camper Donovan. And this week, we have a Poirot short story. It is the case of the missing will. And surprising no one, it was published in The Sketch in October uh, on on Halloween, no less, actually. I know, I know. Very exciting. Although it's not actually a very Halloween-themed... It's not particularly uh, spooky, is it? It is potentially a spooky tale of misogyny <laughs> that perhaps echoes through to this day. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> <laughs> so we do have that. Well, let, let's let's get into it. Perfect segue. Our Thanks. victim... Uh, Miss Violet Marsh, who is a young modern woman of 1923, which means that she has a, a university degree, and she was orphaned and raised by her uncle. One Mr. Andrew Marsh. He came from poor stock. He went to Australia, where he became very, very wealthy as a landowner and a farmer. And he returned to England and purchased Crabtree Manor. <laughs> so pleasant. Sounds lovely. Yeah, and we're even told it's not actually a proper mansion. It's more of like a country farmhouse. Sounds cold. Yeah. Like well, physically cold. Burr. It does. And Andrew Marsh seems cold also. So, <laughs> But he, he died a natural death. So there's actually not anything suspicious here other than the fact that he's apparently a jerk. Who did not believe that women should be educated. That was something upon which they parted ways and... Well, sort sort of. of. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. So upon her uncle's death, Violet Marsh inherits the house for a year. And at the end of that year, all of his assets will go to a bunch of hospitals and various charities. Awfully weird arrangement. That doesn't seem particularly legal. <laughs> it is a strange... It is, well, you know, it's like the people who leave all their money to their six cats and whatnot. I mean, you can kind of do whatever you want, not within reason. <laughs> but there is a cash. His will says, by its terms, Crabtree Manor and its contents are to be at my disposal, that's this is Violet speaking, for a year from his death, during which time my clever niece may prove her wits. Then at the end of that period, my wits having been proved better than hers, the house... And all my uncle's large fortune passed to various charitable institutions. He's put her on notice in his will that she's only got this house for a year and that there's some sort of a puzzle or a game afoot. Well, she assumes. Right. That he, I mean, cor- correctly, ultimately. Yeah. And during which time my clever niece may prove her wits that, you know, that's it's it's a fair assumption on her part. And I'm, I guess she knows her uncle to be the, a wily Gentlemen, and she assumes that there's another will or something that is going to actually allow her to inherit her uncle's fortune and have it not go to charity at the end of that year. Right, but it's a pretty big assumption to be making that yeah. her uncle has just created like a Rube Goldberg device, <laughs> like right <laughs> of inheritance. I mean, it, it's an odd, it's an odd series of assumptions that start this mystery, I think. There's no murder mystery. The only mystery here is where did this missing will go, as one may guess from the title. That's why we really don't have any suspects. The only possible suspects are the caretakers of Crabtree Manor, Mr. and Mrs. Baker, who I don't even know what you would suspect them of. 
perhaps they don't think they don't want to upset the will that was already read out because for maybe they just don't like Violet. I mean, they're they're certainly not getting any money, right? They were already, so they were already like, given money. They were given money, I think, for every year that Mr. Marsh was alive. They were given some right. amount of money. So they're not going to inherit anything else anyway. And then there are some workmen, <laughs> a series of workmen. Those are basically the only other characters in this story. When Violet Marsh goes into Poirot's office, first of all, Hastings is not impressed with the new woman. Mm -mm. I'm going to be blunt. Um, Yeah. Pardon my French. He's a complete asshole about her. (laughs) Yeah. I have a couple of comments on the Suchet adaptation, which is an interesting one. But one of the things that they did was to soften the sort of Hastings misogyny, uh, which is really not softened in the short story at 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 all. all. They'd made it a bit more playful and kind of acceptable for a modern audience, for a, a late 20th century audience, coming from all the characters, even Andrew Marsh in the adaptation. Yes, he, he fully believes that women are not equal to men, but he's a kind of a stand-up guy, and he loves his niece anyway, and eh, he's not that bad. Well, and mean, she it, feels it, that way, too. She actually, yeah. you know, she makes some statement like, oh, we're never going to change him, and I don't even know if we want to, which is, that is not the same way that he's presented in the story at no, all. No, it's not. It's not. Although she does basically say that they had more or less a good relationship, other than the fact that he won't financially support her. So when she totally. goes off to university, she does it on scholarship because he won't pay for it. Right. And she even says in the story, you know, I I don't really have any designs to upend his wishes. If his true sole wish was to donate to those charities, then so be it. That's fine. I'll I'll go on my way. But if there really is some other will, then sure, I'm not I'm no idiot. I'll rake in the cash if I can. To go to our clues, part of the reason why we think that there is an additional will is because the will is not just dated, but it's Mm -hmm. time stamped, which is an oddity. It's part of what prompts Violet, and it's certainly what Poirot takes notice of. Right. It's, I think it's stamped 11 a.m. It is. Yeah. So they're assuming that there, is a, there was a second will made at later than 11 a.m. Correct. And that presumably they must have been done in short order if it wasn't even about the date, but it was about the time. So right. it's clear that there is a manipulation happening here. Sure. That is actually, I think, the motivating force that convinces Poirot that Violet is right and that he and Hastings should go to Crabtree Manor. And then once they get there, they really, really quickly just settle on the office. Right. And for a good reason, which is that the office at Crabtree Manor is pristine. Mr. Andrew Marsh was a methodical man himself. Poirot is very appreciative of that. And all of the keys in his office are, are neatly labeled, except for one. <laughs> right. One of them is different. So the deduction there is that there must be something significant about that. All the documents have been filed and labeled very clearly. Nothing is left to chance. It's got to be significant that there's one label that's dirty and Mm -hmm. in a different handwriting from the very neat and pristine labels elsewhere in the office. Right. I would like to mention the dinner that Poirot and Hastings had beforehand made my tummy rumble, which was a supper of roast chicken, apple pie, and Devonshire cream. Mmm. 
Yum. It sounds pretty <laughs> basic. It sounds basic, but come on, you know, you know that that was some good ass Devonshire cream at Crabtree Manor. Sure, it's a far- also farmed a table. You know, they killed that chicken outside. <laughs> the apples came from a tree. I mean, the guy mm-hmm. was big on farming. It was like super logivore. Mrs. Mrs. Baker was on top of that. The name is perhaps apt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would hope so. Yeah, Um, she is. Um, Mrs. Baker is also observant. That's the other thing that we should note about Mrs. Baker. On top of presumably churning out some fine apple pie, she remembers at the very last minute that it was really suspicious that there had been workers who had come to the house when she didn't think anything was wrong. And the deduction there is that then the workmen were there for a secret project, which Poirot eventually figures out was this secret hiding place in the fireplace. There was like a hollow cavity made. To be clear, Poirot doesn't actually figure that out. Poirot basically goes to the nearest town because they're in the middle of nowhere, and he (laughs) figures out the only company who could do work. And then he asks who went to Crabtree Manor, and people are like, oh, I totally was out there with all of these gentlemen, and we totally made a hidey hole. <laughs> and like, hey, that's that method doesn't have to be flashy and arcane. They you know? they they're very talkative, though. I mean, if I had basically been hired to craft a secret hiding place. I don't know that I would reveal all the details of where it was and how to open it to Monsieur Poirot. Well, maybe those workmen were extra smart and realized that that hiding place was meaningless because it it was because when they go to the hiding place, there's nothing there. Well, there's a there's a scrap of paper there, right? (laughs) Right. Poirot and Hastings go back and they find but this scrap of will, not the whole will, but a scrap with half a signature. It's like he's tantalizing and teasing them from beyond the grave. Or somebody stole it. Or someone stole it. Like the bakers, even though they have zero motivation to do that. Or, oh, the wait, there's no, oh wait, there's no one else in the story. So, yeah. I mean, the workman, I suppose. <laughs> so let's move, let's move on to the resolution of this charming little caper. As we have just mentioned, there's only a scrap of a will in the hiding place. Poirot and Hastings are... Very frustrated. Poirot, in particular. Hastings, I feel, is just frustrated in life. I think this is a pretty common feeling for Hastings, not so much (laughs) Poirot. Yeah, it's it's just his general state of being. But Poirot is incredibly frustrated. So they decide to leave. And then, even not the first time this has happened in a Poirot short story, Poirot insists they jump off the train. That happened in the Big Four. I don't really know how that's in character or why Christy seems to have continued to use this, but they jump off the train, in fact, leaving their bags on the train. And Hastings is particularly irritated by this, which, you know what? I don't know that I always side with Hastings, but in this case, I feel like he's completely right. Oh, no, I feel Hastings' pain here, too. And this is, we were talking about this in a previous episode, how in some ways Christy is so consistent about the mm-hmm. Poirot character, almost annoyingly so, not to, to her uh, in particular. <laughs> she grew so sick of him. But his level of activity, it just 
shifts back and forth from short story to novel to short story to novel. In some of them, he is that typical armchair detective. And then in others, he's jumping off trains. It's just there's not a lot of rhyme or reason to. And this is definitely like a more active. He's running up to Devonshire. He's canvassing workmen. He's jumping off trains. He's he's all over the place. So they go back to Crabtree Manor. Mm hmm. And he's basically like, I have been such a fool. My little gray cells have failed me. And he has somehow realized, and I'm going to be completely honest, I wondered if I had missed something and perhaps, Cumber, you might feel the same or perhaps you can enlighten me and our no, lovely I, listeners. I know because, what you're going to say, yeah. Um, he has figured out that the dirty tag for the keys actually was a marker for a folded up piece of document that is a blank page on which is actually the will, except it was written in invisible ink. And it can only be brought to light, har, 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 by holding it over a flame. Yeah. There's no clue that leads us to that, to the deduction that it was written in disappearing ink. No. Oh, and actually I stand corrected. A blend of disappearing and sympathetic ink. (laughs) 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 It was disappointing. I mean, that is the big solve that, oh, it's actually hiding in this very specific place and in plain sight because the ink is a special type of ink. But there's nothing that leads to that other than Poirot's own internal ingenuity, I, I, I suppose. I don't know. We're not privy to it. I don't generally leap to the assumption that something is written in haste, invisible ink. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were referring to the writing of the short story itself. Oh, so forgive well, me. Well, <laughs> you know, also, also, also that the ultimate will—it's—it's it's not only written in invisible ink, but it's written at twelve thirty p.m. So it's also time stamped. Um, and right, it but it's an hour and a half later, so that's right. the will that sticks. And it, and it leaves everything to Violet. So, you know, the presumption being that if she were clever enough to figure out that he had hidden things in a random hole, because she had to figure that out because the signature part is actually hidden in the floor. So even if she had just found the invisible ink, I don't think the signatures are on it. Am I wrong about that? Oh, because the signature part of the, the si- signature part of the signature is the is scrap the of the thing? paper that they find in the bricks. I, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's actually what happened, but it's so convoluted that I don't know. <laughs> this this is an example of another thing we've touched on, which is that sometimes because Christie wrote these short stories and presumably didn't spend a lot of time on each individual short story, she experiments sometimes in interesting ways and sometimes in not so interesting ways. And I would argue that this is a story that doesn't hold up all that well and that she would have improved or enhanced had it been uh, in a novel. And because it's just a short, a kind of one-off short story, it just, but, she I mean, it's so, you know, dashed I, I, it off. We, we do so many of these short stories in large part because there are so many mm-hmm. of the short stories. But, you know, I think some of them are really mini masterpieces. I oh, mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think a great number of them are better than a number of the novels. And, 100%. 100 There's and, just a lot. There's great variation in the quality oh, of these short stories. Some of them are just, like, so perfect. The writing is perfect. The characterization is perfect. The plots are so clever. But this one, 
This one, not so much, although the one thing I would like to highlight is in the last, the second to last paragraph of the story, because it kind of ends on a philosophical question that I I found interesting, which is this. So Poirot says, Miss Marsh proved the astuteness of her wits and the value of the higher education for women by once putting the matter in my hands. Always employ the expert. And his point is that a sign of education is people realizing that, well, I'm not going to even try in an area in which I, I don't have much knowledge. I'm just going to go to an expert. And I think there, there's even a little bit of a further point, which is that because she went to university, because she had some sort of a career, we don't know exactly what, but she had the wherewithal and the means to actually go to Mr. Oparo's office and presumably to pay him for his time, right. even if he hadn't been successful. And she certainly wouldn't have had that if she hadn't gone to university and been you know, right, a member of the it, profession. Classes. Right, so good on her. Again, absolutely. And because I think the other really important point in this story is that nobody is supporting her. Like right. the money that she stands to gain if she finds a second will, that's just a cherry on top because all of her money is hers. She does not appear to be married. Mm-hmm. And well, Miss Violet Marsh, right? Yeah, Miss Violet Marsh, and she's an orphan. And obviously she's not being given anything by this uncle. And so all of the money that she has to support herself and to hire Poirot, she's done entirely on her own, which is something that I don't think we've seen before. Even somebody like really independent, even like an Anne Bedingfield inherited. Yeah, she inherited from her father and then was happily married by the end. I mean, all of those thriller heroines get married. They all get that happy ending. Or there's the spinster model, and those women don't earn their money either. Miss Marple is living off something from some sort of relation, presumably. She she never held a job. So we think. Miss Marple's income is a little unclear. You, you, you probably think that she's like a super spy assassin I or something mean, since she's, you know. As everybody should know at this point, I, I have my I have my suspicions about this purple. <laughs> yeah, I think she's a very unusual character and it's a very, that the issue of the new woman and, the, you know, an, an independent self-sufficient woman is placed at the forefront of the story in the, in the very first paragraph when Hastings has an extremely negative reaction to her and then at the end when Hastings even says... I wonder, I very much wonder what old Andrew Marsh would have thought. And probably Andrew Marsh would have said that that wasn't, it wasn't fair. And I kind of love that she beat him in the best of ways, which was that she beat him not at his game, but at her game. So she was like, well, I'm not going to waste my time trying to figure this out. I'm just going to hire someone who can figure it out in two seconds. Done. Oh, give me my money. Thank you. You know what it is a lot? It's Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark with the sword and then just pulling out a pistol. Right. Hercule Poirot being the pistol in this analogy. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just totally. like, oh, I don't I don't have time for this. Like, yeah. oh, yeah, maybe, maybe if I had a little more time, I would do it the gentleman's way. But, right. you know. Do you right. not have time for this? She's like, I've got to go back to the room of my own. Sorry. That was terrible. But. Um, so th- so let's talk about the adaptation 
This was an odd adaptation. It's in season five, which is the latest season that still has a lot of those lighter adaptations of the short stories. I believe there were eight episodes in season five as opposed to ten in the earlier ones, but we're still in sort of light Poirot zone at this point. And it's weird because we've talked a lot about how the adaptations do such a good job of filling out the rather thin short stories, often with a car chase or Hastings going to a car show or something involving vehicles of some sort with Hastings and something funny with Miss Lemon. But whatever, it's done well and it's charming and it's entertaining. This, I think, is an exception because this episode really threw out the bones of the short story and retained nothing much more than the title and the character names and the characters that appeared in the short story. And the fact that there's a will that's involved. And I suppose misogyny. Right. Misogyny is certainly front and center here. There's a missing will. We still have Miss Violet Marsh. We have her uncle, Andrew Marsh. Although by the end of the episode, spoiler, we find out that he is in fact her father. father. It's turned into a murder mystery in which Andrew Marsh is actually murdered. And Catherine and I were talking about this a little bit, confirming before we started recording this episode that... Sometimes we we need to do that. (laughs) Sometimes we need to do that. We're like, did you watch the same thing I watched? Because... We kind of know who did it, but... I mean, we know who did it. She's let off in handcuffs. So we know who did it, but we're not exactly sure how how we got there. And we also didn't totally care because it was convoluted, not in a good way. And I never say that about these episodes, but that's how I felt. Usually they add a couple of clues, and I appreciate the clues they add. Sometimes it's a little cheesy, but... It's usually pretty good. It's usually like a 30% reinvention or addition to the material that's there. This was 90%. Cut from a different cloth. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I also said this to you before we started recording, but this episode just really doesn't have anything happen in it for... For a long time. At least least a third. It's got to be the latest, one of the latest murders in these episodes. Andrew Morse is not murdered until about halfway through the episode, which is insane. And, you know, I'm completely fine with very long builds on stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. I like my slow television, but... This is one of those cases where because it's so removed from the short story and because it's so removed from the structure of other Poirot episodes, you're literally just sitting there being like, what is going on here? There's a line at the end of the episode that I thought encapsulated the problems with it. Why should it all go to Violet? Because Andrew Marsh wished it as proof that she was his daughter. sense because if he wanted to give the money to her because she was his daughter, that doesn't necessarily follow that he also thought, oh, you're my equal. And everything that I said up until the moment that I died about how I don't think women are equal to men, I'm throwing out the window by wanting to leave all my money to my daughter. I just feel like they were trying to shoehorn the women's rights issue into this because it was there in the original and and that didn't work and it was just it was just sloppy she's also going to use she's also going to use the money to start a publishing imprint Mm -hmm. i kind of expect i was hoping that she was going to name check some 
publisher that's become wildly successful, but she didn't. They, she did name it, but I, I didn't recognize the name. It's also, it's very unusual in these episodes for Poirot's involvement with the characters to be awkward, like the reason why Poirot was there, which is such a... a is he's best friends with Andrew Marsh, apparently. Yeah, and, and like that's such a hurdle to get over in these episodes, and they usually do it so elegantly, and here they I just felt like they didn't, because there's this awkward scene where Andrew Marsh knocks on Poirot's bedroom door, because he's staying there as a guest, and is like, hey, Poirot! And then he sits on his bed, and he's like wheezing, because he has a heart condition. He's like, yeah, so, I'm gonna die soon, but whatever, whatevs, it's fine. I just more feel bad for the people around me. And yeah, I want to leave everything to my niece Violet, and um, I want you to be executor. Oh, there's a phone call, I'm gonna go. And then, of course, he gets murdered an hour later. And so then Poirot is the one that actually has this knowledge of what he wanted to do with his money. And And Hastings is all like, oh, well, you should just tell everybody. And Poirot was like, well, they're not going to believe me because I was the only one in the bedroom. And I was thinking when he was saying that, well, true. And why? Like, Poirot was never in a situation, put in a situation like that, I don't believe, in any of the actual stories or novels. It's just, it's very personal in a way that doesn't seem totally appropriate. It rubbed me the wrong way. I don't disagree. The best addition here is, per usual, Miss Lemon. Of course. Miss Lemon cracks the whole case open. She does, with one word. Mrs. Mrs. <laughs> she will recover soon. I think you'll find Mrs. Campion's made of pretty strong stuff. She's a miss, Doctor. Miss Campion. You called her Mrs. You uh, know her well. Well. No, but we know she's not married. Tell me, Doctor. Did you call her Mrs. out of habit or a slip of the tongue? Look, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to speak out of turn, but... If there's something you know, Doctor, it's your duty to tell us. Miss Campion has had a baby at some time in her life. By cesarean section, no less. perhaps a little bit dovetails with the general kind of plight of women theme in the episode. I feel like if anyone was going to pick up on a Mrs. versus a Miss, it might be someone such as Miss Lemon. Miss Lemon, right. A professional lady. You know, Pearl also has a major, like, finger-shaking moment. But during all this time, not once did we ask ourselves this question. Is this son that we seek? Right, which is, again, them trying to tie it into the whole women's rights. It was just, which is... It was very heavy-handed. Yeah. And the actual plotting of it, not great. Yeah. And I will, I promise this is the the last thing I want to point out about this episode, but it was such a weird moment. There's a scene in which Poirot asks the housekeeper, the Marsh's housekeeper, as she's doing laundry outside with her husband and her son standing there. Madam Baker, I truly wish to cause you no offense, but Monsieur Andrew Marsh, he admired you greatly, n'est-ce pas? Oh, yes. And you were also very fond of him. Yes. And perhaps it would be true to say that you did not work for him as the nanny to Mademoiselle Violet so much as to share in his life. Stop. 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 
don't want to hear this. You're saying I might have a claim to his fortune, aren't you, Mr. Poirot? Be quiet. Dad, you always said Andrew had an eye for the ladies. Yes, well, in my case, he admired from afar. After we came back from Australia, Mr. Andrew was sent to fight in France. You were conceived while he was away. He essentially just flat out asks her, were you having sex with your boss? And are you actually the mother? Is it's your a, son... Well, it's not exactly how he phrases it. But, he's, but it's very clear what he's asking. He does not right. use the word sex, obviously, but it's very clear that he's asking, is the son who's standing five feet away actually the son of your boss, as opposed to the man standing another five feet away right. who are both watching this? Really inappropriate, Poro. I, I didn't believe that he would actually do it that way. There was no reason why that scene had to be as unpleasant no. as it was. Really no. bizarre. Not one of our favorites. I guess Not we can both agree on that. Favorites. Well, that is the case of the missing will. We found the will. All is right in the world. You go, girl. Violet Marsh. Join us next week <laughs> as we discuss another Poirot short story, The Veiled Lady. And in the meantime, please feel free to contact us in oh so many ways via email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or on Twitter, we're at allaboutthedame, or on Instagram, we're at allaboutagatha. And if you are listening to this on iTunes, please take a moment to rate and review us. And if you happen to be in the vicinity of Cambridge on June 19th and 20th, and 20th, uh, you can see us in person at the fourth annual Agatha Christie Conference. Details at agathachristieconference.com. Summer solstice and Agatha Christie, what more could you want? A girl can dream. <laughs> You're like a lot more. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> so much more. I, I feel I like like say. five. I feel like five things went through your head. As I, said that. <laughs> I mean, there definitely was a list. Definitely was a list. On that note. On that note. See you next week. Bye. Bye.